Well, if you have a Bible, please open it to Titus chapter 1. That's in the T section of the New Testament there. We're going to be looking at verses, well, the second half of 6 down through 9. But before we begin, let us pray together. Almighty and gracious Father, since our salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious word, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 This is the text is chapter one, verses five through nine. I'm going to read that for us now. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy, for, uh, for dishonest gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and innocent. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict Now, this is the text. Now, as you've been here before, you understand that the, the way that Paul has written to Titus is that he has crammed a great deal into a few sentences. This is a very short letter. He, he is telescoping a great deal. He's, he's making half uh, assertions. He's leaving out premises. He's not fully explaining himself. Because what he wants is for Titus to actually work out everything that Paul means. He's, he's worked with Titus for a long time. He's, he wants to remind Titus of a great deal that Titus already knows. Because Titus has, has been through a lot with Paul, and he knows what he So instead of writing him a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy letter like Romans, he writes him a short letter. Um, full of holes that actually, by reading it, Titus will fill in the holes and remember the things that he is supposed to remember. It's a rhetorical device that Paul used. And uh, you can see in this list that that's exactly what he's done. There, there is a great deal here that he doesn't fully explain. Now the fact that Paul tells Titus to set what remains unfinished in order implies that things are unfinished. Right? There are holes, there are gaps, there are it's an undeveloped church on Crete. Now Titus's task, in order to put things in order, he says put things in order and appoint elders. So you can see that he has some things to do, and that's what the rest of the letter is going to be about. Uh, things to teach, things to address, people to shout down, people to encourage. He has a lot of other things to do to put things in order, but he also has to appoint elders. It's two different things that he's required to do on Crete. He says, appoint these elders as I directed you, implying that there's already been instruction about this. I think at this point, the program for finding training and, and appointing elders is well known. I think amongst the apostolic fathers, all of those men, they understand exactly what it is that they're doing when they're appointing elders. Now, the I that he uses is emphatic. The word directed means command, order, or charge. So even though they have a close personal relationship, he's essentially telling, I order you to do this. I order you to do this. You cannot leave until this is done. This is the task, and it's hard, and you have to see it through. Now, our passage ends with a proper use of the scripture. That's what verse 9 is about. That the man that he's describing here will be able to handle the word of God rightly. In verse 11, Paul states that the circumcision party are a bunch of home wreckers who must be silenced. Okay, so you... What they need are men who know how to who know the word of God, who know how to use the word of God to build up the body, and at the same time defend the body against heretics. And and because they are home wreckers, right, what we see is that the point here is that elders are supposed to be people who know how to build a home. They know how to build a household. They know how to run a household. And and that's what that's like the the bedrock to this whole argument. Verse seven. In, in verse 7, elders are called God's stewards. Now, a steward is a, what, what is a steward? Why does he say they are God's stewards? He calls them elders, he calls them overseers, he calls them God's stewards. And you see that these offices aren't separate. He's describing the same position, but you can think of them as elders. And if you look at the Old Testament, you see how an elder acted in Israel. The 
overseer. What does an overseer do? Think of the difference between, say, an overseer and a manager. But then here he calls them God's stewards. And I think that is an extremely loaded term. And it has everything to do with the context of Crete. A steward is a manager. It's an administrator. It's a trustee of someone else's household, or property, or business. The root of the Greek word translated as steward in verse 7 is oikos, which means house. So stewardship was originally understood as household management. It went on to mean other things, but I think the original Greek word meant someone who oversees a household, stewards a household. And so elders are God's stewards. They're God's household managers. God has a house. He's building it one generation at a time, one believer at a time, one family at a time, one city at a time, as he's overcoming the world. And what he needs are house stewards, house managers, who are going to be overseeing the construction of that house. Now, there are some builders here amongst us, right? You need a general contractor, don't you? Can you imagine if you just got all the contractors that you needed to do something, you're like, okay, well, there's the lot, go build it. And you got the guy there trying to put in the plumbing and you haven't put in the foundation, right? Can you imagine such a thing? It, how out of order it could get? You need someone there who says, no, 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 oh, guys, we can't just start playing PVC piping here, there, everywhere. We actually have to put a foundation in. We actually have to frame the thing. We've got to put the siding on, okay? Now we have to make sure that the electrical is done correct. Oh, there's no, there's, there's no pipes that run to this part of it. So now we got to back up, we got to do more. What you need is a manager. You need a general contractor, somebody who's overseeing the project. And that's what elders are supposed to be. Now that does two things. One, it elevates certain aspects of the job that I don't think we normally think about. And it actually should humiliate and humble a great number of us who are elders and pastors because that, that's what you're doing. You're a general contractor. Now, if you're a general contractor, do you do all the work? And there's so much implied in the fact that he calls it a household steward. Does the household steward clean toilets? Does the household steward, right, if we've all seen um, Out and Abbey, right, the guy over the whole house, is he the one actually changing out the fire, uh, the, the lawns and the fire? Is he the one polishing all, all the silver? Is he the one getting all the clothes out of the attic? No. You have someone who's in charge of other people and t giving them tasks. Everybody, nobody here has seen Down and Abbey? Carson, right? So if you want an elder, you gotta find a person. Okay. You need to find someone who's like that. You need to find someone who's a general contractor. You need to, to find somebody who's not gonna do all the work themselves, but it's gonna oversee the work and make sure that it's done properly. Now the necessary virtues to be vivified and the vices that need to be mortified are listed here for us. He, he says, don't do these things. An elder must not do these things, he must do these things. And so he gives us both the positive and the negative. And this is always the way Paul talks, right? Put off these things so you can put on these things. Put these things to death so you can put, bring these things to life. And, and the list here is a bunch of no's and a bunch of do's. Don't do these things, do these things. Now, a father in a, in a household is responsible for the protection and provision of his house. A father is a household and, and this is why he's going to make the connection between the household of God and the household of the men that he's talking about. Right? Because what, what does a father do? Right? Is a father the one who necessarily cleans the toilets? Is he the one who cooks all the bread? Could you imagine the kind of household run by a man who does everything? Oh, well, we can. It's common these days. Right? We're, we're surrounded by households where it's not that the wife is the husband's helper. It, it's that the husband has become the wife's helper. Especially in Christian cultures, here I'm going to—I love everybody. I'm just going to take a swap at everyone in the room at the same time. So one of the things about restoring the household is that we now think that the the most important thing in the kingdom of heaven is the household and the woman running it, and the man is her helpmate. And that's actually not the biblical model. Okay, a father must be a house steward. He's overseeing the whole project. This is why, as you get married and you start to de develop things, I, <laughs> I remember. I remember seeing how my wife decorated, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, you just have like a hodgepodge of pictures, pictures here. When you go to my house, all the pictures are like aligned perfectly with the light on them. It looks like a like an art museum. Right? Anne-Marie is like very eclectic. She's like the hippie girl. <laughs> she just sort of slaps the stuff up on her wall in any way that you want. And I remember those early days where Dean, the former pastor, used to have to meet with me regularly. Like, Don't say that. 
don't do that. Right? Your house is lovely. You're not in charge of this. What you need to do is you need to communicate with her a vision of what you guys are going to have together. You're not telling her what you want. As everyone has heard before, I used to call her and tell her what I wanted for dinner. I, I'd be like, enchiladas would be nice. As if my wife is like a fast food restaurant menu. Right? This, this is what happens in our circles. When I talk this way, the house steward now is a man who tells his wife how to do everything. That's not what I'm talking about. And he's also not the one running around doing everything she tells him to do. A household steward is somebody who oversees it. Right? How, what, what is the, the vision? What is the direction? What is the mission that this household is about? And, and then from that, everybody figures out what they're supposed to do. Wife figures out what she's supposed to do. Kids figure out what they're supposed to do. You figure out how this household interacts with that household. Now the reason I'm going to this great length to explain this is because this is fundamentally what man was meant to be. He, he, was, he was created to be a household manager. In the garden, Adam was commanded to guard and keep the garden. Guard it and keep it. Provide for it and protect it. Husbands do what? They guard their families, right? And they provide for their families. They protect them and provide. Protection, provision, protection, provision. And that is what a father is supposed to do. And that is a good household manager, right? He provides everything. He doesn't take the money and spend it, right? Wife, you, you can't have your own, and we all know there are also people like this. Wife can't spend any money. The husband spends all the money. The husband doles out the money in such a way that he's in control of the whole That's not what I'm talking about. You bring the bacon home, and if your wife wants to put it on green beans, that's what she decides to do. <laughs> I mean, I would just eat the bacon. But then there's this thing you can do where you put it on other stuff, and it makes other stuff that doesn't taste good taste good. <laughs> and I would have never known this if I hadn't gotten married. <laughs> things you can put bacon on. I mean, I could do a whole sermon just like that. Anyway. <laughs> so Adam was told to guard and keep it. The, the Eden. And what, what's funny is later, over the tabernacle and the temple, which were both house, God's house on earth, the priests were told to do exactly the same thing in Hebrew that Adam was told to do. Provide for and protect this house. So the first priests were, were like Adam. They were protectors. And, and they were providers for the household of God. And this is now, I think, through Paul coming into the New Testament. And what Paul is told to do is find household managers. And you will know what you're looking for when you look at what? Their household. Right? It's not a mystery. This is why when you're finding qualified men, right? And <laughs> I recently, I've been going through resumes. We're hiring people for the, some, trying desperately to hire someone for the mission trip. And I got a resume, and I had never heard of any of the schools. And I was like, I've never heard of any of these schools. This could be like a correspondence course that this guy got out of a trunk for all my And so now i got to send the resume around to all these pastors I know in Canada and be like, is this guy a check out? Is this legit? Right? Did he just make up this thing with some crayon and a napkin? And, and sometimes when you're talking about qualifications, it gets very complicated. Right? We, we go through this process every year at Presbytery. A guy comes there, he has to write papers, he has to take all these tests. All that's good. I'm not, I'm not throwing that under the bus. But, but for the local church, right, when you're looking for someone who, who's going to lead and who's going to take on the responsibility of managing the house, what you're looking for is a man who manages his own house. That, that is what it's all about. That's what Adam was supposed to be about. That's what the priests were supposed to be about. That's what the elders in the Old Testament were about. And that's what elders in the New Testament are all about, household management. Now, if an elder is a household manager... What that tells us is a number of important things. First off, he's accountable to God for how he runs God's house. It's not the elder's house. Okay? Carson doesn't own down Abbey. He works for the guy who does. And so elders, you know, it's just like in your own home, these are, those are not your kids. And that is, in one sense, not your wife. That is the Lord's property, and you are simply managing these great things that the Lord has given you. You are a steward of the things that he's you're given children, you're given a wife. What are you doing with those things? What's the proper use of these things? And, and that's what we're talking about when it comes to the household of God. This isn't my house. This wasn't Dean's house. And, and one of the things that shows how healthy this church was was five years ago, we switched from one pastor to another pastor, and people still have a hard time believing we didn't lose anyone. Because usually change is when a bunch of disgruntled people are like, okay, now it's my time to pull the ripcord and get out of this place. 
And it, and it wasn't difficult. People, people understood it wasn't Dean's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. This, this place belongs to Jesus. This is his house. And we're simply stewarding what he's given us. This is crucial for us to understand. Right? So when it comes to coming up with agendas, when it comes, comes to addressing people, when it comes to counseling and discipling, when it comes to uh, taking on error, we can have our own motivations, we can have our own agendas, we can have our own plans. And in a, a lot of time, it, it's a short step between building the kingdom of God and building your own kingdom. But a household steward will answer to God for what he did and did not do in the household of God. Just like you will stand, your husband, Father, you stand before the living God and you'll be like, what did you do? Look at all the things I gave you. What did you do? And it's the same. Now, if you're an elder like myself and Joel, not only are they going to say, is he going to say, what did you do with the wife and kids? But you know how many people came through the doors of that church. What did you do with what we gave you? And that is a question that we're going to have to answer. And my appeal is going to be Jesus Christ. My answer is Jesus appeal to Jesus because I have no answer. I cannot answer for these things. Who, who can endure this? And I'm going to appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ on that day of judgment, but I'm still going to be asked. Now, considering that the churches on Crete met in homes, okay, that's why he's told, told to go from town to town. If you start digging into this, originally, all the synagogues didn't necessarily become Christian overnight. And so you have some people meeting in synagogues, but largely what you have were people meeting in homes. And so the metaphor here takes on even a new meaning, where church, local church is a local home. It's meeting in someone's home. And so th this is why you're setting a father over this, this family, this new family, the brothers and sisters in the Lord that come together in this, in this little house. And now what I want you to do is go out there and appoint fathers over them, men who will lead them, men who will serve and protect them, provide for them. So the home wreckers, the home wrecking heretics, that uh, Titus is supposed to address, right? So you see that not he's setting men over the households, the churches, but he also wants to fix the home, homes wrecked by the heretics. And so think about this for a second. There are men going around destroying households on Crete, and part of the answer is, is putting ordained men over the household of God. So one way to fix the homes in Linwood is to have qualified men in charge of the household of God. Part of fixing the culture is having um, qualified men who know how to build a house, because what they're going to do, what they're going to be fixing, is households. And this is true. When, when Joel and Jared and I have people come to us, the problems are what usually marriage problems, how to raise your children problems. It's household fixing. So we're like general contractors, we're like, well, you know, this is a job I could do. Uh, this is a job I can't do. Here, read this book. Here, this is a job for yourself, right? Don't pay. I'm a professional plumber, why pay me $7,000 and you can fix the sink yourself? Right? That, that, that's, what, that's what it's like. You're a household fixer. You fix marriages, you fix parenting problems, you fix education problems, you're, you're fixing interpersonal problems, things that people are doing and saying and peeing that is destroying their home. That's what we see here on Crete. So the, 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 this is why letters like this become scripture. The specific situation in Crete is a metaphor for the whole apostolic mission, which is house fixing. The elders are to go out because they, they are manage their own households well, and what they're supposed to be doing is building households. And as they do that, what you're building is the household of God. That, that's what Paul says elsewhere. We're, we're, we're the temple now. And as you're fixing these home units and you're putting them together, what you're creating, what you're fixing, what, what is happening, the result is the kingdom of God on earth. An elder must manage God's household. It logically follows then that he must be able to manage his own house. And as I was saying before, there's like implied things going on here. See, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul actually says it explicitly. He says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now that's what's behind everything he's saying here to Titus. But as you can see, he doesn't just come right out and say that. See, see the work I've had to do in order to to come to the same conclusion? And, and I refer you back to the first sermon of this series. Why did Paul do that instead of just saying it to him? Right? What's the difference between Timothy and Titus, the situations, the men themselves? He, he, all of that 
In one verse, he just states it clearly. Find guys who can leave their homes well because then they can leave the, home, the household of God well. He doesn't just come right out and say that. It's implied. Now, I have mentioned in the past that household codes, what's called the household codes, were common ethical framework for first century culture. And if you go back and you look at what the Romans were doing and you look at the Greeks and ethic, uh, people who were doing, dealing in ethics, what they would talk about is the household codes. This is what a father is supposed to do, this is what a mother is supposed to do, this is what a slave is supposed to do, this is what a servant is supposed to do, and this is how they used to frame it. And if you think about the New Testament, this is what Paul is doing all the time. Husbands do this, wives do this, servants do that. It was read for us today. It was, it's household codes. It's how he understood ethics. He doesn't say, okay, there's a man and his family over here, and then what I'm going to do is go over here and talk about ethics. Right? If you go into my office, there's a shelf full of books on ethics. There's a separate book shelf full of books on family. And I think that part of the problem is we've separated the two. We've separated the two. We think that ethics is its ca a category all by itself, separate from the people in our lives. Right? So this is, this is how you can have these wildly disparag disparaging things, like politicians who, who are ethically in response, right? We're going to trust this guy with making decisions for the whole country, but forget about what he does in the Oval Office. Right? That, that, ethics is over here. That's his personal business over there. And I think we've all bought into this, right? and I can demonstrate it by the bookshelf that I have in there. Oh, family over here, ethics over here. Paul says, no, 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 it's the same thing. <laughs> if, if, if a man is going to commit adultery and, and, and he's not trustworthy by his own wife, who, why would we entrust anything to this guy? Why would we entrust a McDonald's fryer to this guy? Frankly, if he's that dangerous with a woman, I don't really want him there with boiling oil. That's kind of how I look at it. <laughs> it's absurd to me. Now, household code, that's what we're talking about. Hebrews 13.7 and 2 Thessalonians 3.9 both state that the leaders of a church are to be imitated by the people in the church. So this is where I'm going to really, I'm going big on this, because what I'm not talking about is the ethical standard for men. Right? If, if all of you, men and women, are supposed to imitate me and Joel and Jared, then what, what I'm about to explain, whether you're a qualified elder or not, or even whether you're a man or not. All of this applies. This is what God wants in his household. This is how he wants people to act. And you find men who are doing this because you're putting them in charge of people and everybody's supposed to do likewise. Okay, and, and whenever you start getting into a list like this, because I'm gonna go through this list one by one, and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, it was it's hard to write, right? I don't mind talking about the standards for bringing up elders when I'm talking about another person, but when all of you know me so well, and I've got to get up here and I've got to be like, don't do some of this stuff, you know, like I don't do it. <laughs> and, and they're like, maybe Joel can preach this sermon. Okay, so what I am not doing here, okay, I don't want you to go home and count up the ways, all the ways that you suck. And, and that all the reasons God shouldn't love you. Okay? Also, ladies, what I'm not doing is, right, I'm not giving you 15 different ways to elbow your husband. Okay? You heard him on Sunday. You heard what he said and what you're not doing. And that's not what I'm doing either. Okay? What I'm giving you right now is two things. One, the standard to which we should all arise. Okay, and let, we'll come back to that in a second. But also what I'm giving you is, is a list of prayer requests. <laughs> the, 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 I can't even describe how much of, of my position and how I've arrived even having this conversation with you right now stems from the prayers of my own wife. Right? If, if, in the end, what's going to be revealed is a large part of this had to do with her, who I know was praying for my conversion before I was even a Christian. So, so if you want to fix him, right, if you're going to think about it that way, you shouldn't. But if you are, then what you're going to do is you're going to go home and you're going to get on your knees and you're going to pray about these things. Okay, because what we're talking about here is not perfection. This is what we should attain. Every single one of us should attain to the things that I'm going to describe. But what that doesn't mean is we look at the list and we think there's no hope. Right? How can you ever find an elder out of this group? 
How can I ever arise to, to be any kind of ethical person given the way he just described this? But we go back to the start of the letter, and the reason that Paul is writing to Titus and what he wants him to think about is, is, is the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Okay? What I want is your faith in Jesus Christ, that he will finish the work that he has begun in you. That's what I want more of. What I want is more knowledge. I want you to actually understand that when, how many times have you passed over this, especially you ladies, and you're like, oh, that's a list for men who are going to leave the church who I don't really need to think about. No. The, <laughs> these men are going to be the ones you're imitating, and this is the standard for all of us. Don't pass by it. It's knowledge. You need this. Why? Because what we want to increase is godliness. That's what we want. Not in a finger-pointing kind of way. I want you to be godlier. I want to be godlier. We ought to want one another to be godlier. And, and there's, it's not a mystery as to how to do it. <laughs> Paul says, listen, as I've already directed you, as we've already done in every town that we've ever been in together, as, as I'm going to also tell Timothy for Ephesus, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how he wants us to live. This is how he lived. This is the kind of guy Jesus was. And so this is the kind of guy you should be. This is the kind of woman you should be. These are the kind of children you should raise. And this should be the thing that we want for all the people who are living in darkness. So let's, let's look at it. Okay. Let's look at it. Let's look at the prayer request. This is one of those emails. You all get it. Right, right there in the bar. It says prayer requests. And that's what I'm going to now describe to all of you. This is what we ought to be seeking for, praying for one another. Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now I'm going to leave the phrase above reproach to the end. But first, I want to talk about the fact that an elder ought to be a one-woman man. Okay. Now, obviously, because if you're a one-woman man... <laughs> this excludes women from being elders. And that's all I'm going to say about that for now. But you ought to be a one-woman man. Uh, an elder must be sexually exclusive and devoted to a single woman. One woman. This is how he exhibits the Christian definition of marriage to all the followers of Christ. You cannot go into the pulpit and start telling everybody about how it's one man, one woman, one lifetime when everybody knows that you are not devoted to your wife. It's a hard set. Now, I, I give thanks to God. This is probably one of the easiest things for me to sell because <laughs> I ignore my wife, and I think my quantifies in that category are pretty solid. But you have got to be a one-woman man. That's what's required. If, if, if you want the disciples to be about marriage, to be about exclusivity, to reject the sexual ethics of the culture, you have got to demonstrate that, that Eden is a place to go. Right? It's a place that you can go and delight in and be unashamed and meet through all day in this beautiful place but there's only one door to get in there. And that's what G.K. Chesterton talked about. In his book Orthodoxy, he said, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. <laughs> keeping to one woman is a small price for much, uh, I'm sorry, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. <laughs> a man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. A man must know the value of the garden. He must, in this metaphorical sense, you're welcome, moms and fathers of little children. We have to understand its influence, this garden, its power over us, its power over our natural appetites, its power over our desires. We must know that access to this beautiful garden is found by a single door, a door that we protect, a door that we guard, and partially by protecting and guarding that one door, you are thereby also protecting and guarding all the other doors. And that's something about sexual ethics that we often forget. Exclusivity is the point of marriage. And because it's one man, one woman, and that means by doing that, by focusing on that, you are simultaneously guarding all the other doors. As I said before, if a man cannot be faithful to his wife, he ought not to be trusted with anything. 
anything. Don't trust them to change the tire on your car. And, and part of why we are where we are in America is because we somehow think that a man can find 50 different doors in the Eden and still be trusted with what? Right? The Pentagon? The standard at this point. I wouldn't put this guy in charge of a squad car if you can't be faithful to your wife. Now next, the father without the qualities required to keep his children in line does not have the qualities required to keep the saints in line. And, and this is very important, right? If you're supposed to be about discipling and leading people further up and further into a deep faith and belief and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can't even do it at home, get out of there. Stop. And, and there's a lot to be said about this because, and I gotta move on because I got a long list, but debauchery is actually that the word that they say, but make sure that your kids aren't debauched. Well, the word is like, like, um, you know, sexual perversion at a high level. Um, and so he's clearly not talking about little children here. But this is part of that, how old are we talking about about the kids? Well, generally five-year-olds are not debauched. But a 25-year-old who goes to the Washington State University could be quite debauched. And so he's clearly talking about older kids. But he's talking about their faith as well. They have to be believers. If, if you can't convince the people in your own household to it's going to be a hard sell when you get it get into this position and try to convince others. Now, the last thing I'm going to say about this is it's quite possible. I know a man near 70 who was apostate for many years, uh, all the years that his kids were little, and, and raised none of them in the faith. Later, he's converted, and now he's in a, quite a position at his church. He has a great deal of trust, authority, and respectability, and it has nothing to do with his the way that he raised his kids because he wasn't a Christian at the time. And I think that we have to think through these things very carefully, right? Say a man has seven children and one of them doesn't turn out. Is that man unqualified? Has he proven that he absolutely cannot disciple young people to believe in the faith? No, I think this, this is a conversation that could take its own certain series. But the point is, the fundamental point, is that if you're going to put a man, if you're going to trust him with, with women, if you're going to trust him with the community, if you're going to trust him with marriages, if you're going to trust him with kids, he's got to prove that he is not an adulterer and that he can actually raise up people and convince them of the truth. Cycle them of the truth. Now, how does a man become a one-woman man who raises his children in the fear and admonition of How does he get that way? What, what, what does that mean that he can do both of those things? Well, that's what we see next. We see the list of vices that you put to death and the virtues that you enliven in order to become a one-woman man who's raising his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Verses 7 through 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, a one-woman man who can raise obedient and faithful children has a Christ-like character. I said Christ-like character, not Christ's character. <laughs> verse 7 consists of negative terms, while verse 8 lists positive terms to explain what this character consists of. Since the office of elder is one of authority and power, the vices that are listed here are those to which persons in positions of authority are especially tempted. So this applies to parents. This applies to masters. This is what I was talking about, about household ethics. Okay? It, almost everyone in this room has some authority over someone else. And, and, and what, what in that authority are you most tempted to do? What, what are the vices most likely to occur in a power relationship? A qualified house steward must not be arrogant. Okay? The more accurate translation is self-willed. I like self-willed better. He must not be self-willed. The Christian leader must be sensitive, using his authority in ways that truly promote God's work and not any kind of personal agenda. This is a central characteristic of godliness, the willingness to surrender your will to the Father's will. Our best example, of course, is Jesus, who said the will of the Father was his very food. He said, Father, I will follow you anywhere you want me to go. If, if there's another way, please let figure that out. But the, if there isn't another way, your will be done and not mine. Jesus is the example of this. He was not self-willed. He was not arrogant. People accused him of being arrogant, but he wasn't. He spoke the truth, and when it came time between his will and his father's will, his father's will won every time. 
A self-willed man is headstrong, stubborn, arrogant, and considerate of other people's opinions, other people's feelings, other people's desires. He is independent, self-assertive, ungracious, particularly towards other people's opinions, which differ from his own. Okay? Right? How well does it how, how well would it work out if inside one household you have a husband and wife who, who belong to two different religions? And when I say religious, I mean Christian. You've got a Coptic and a Baptist. Like, how, how well is that going to go? Right? How hard is that going to go? Right? And, and that's what happens when you're an elder. You've got a, people, right? This is why I've had to learn how to do this. People ask me something, and I have to stop for a second. I'm like, do you mean me, or do you mean the church? Um, my personal view doesn't, have, doesn't really have anything to do with this conversation. I can speak for the church, though, and what the church says and what the church is going to do. Now, you know how hard that is? And I'll be, it's funny, it's been a while. I would wear a collar every day. I'd wear one of those little collars. I'm all about that. But you know, every time I bring it up and every time I make the motion, it gets broken down. <laughs> right? So people are like, should men wear collars? I'm like, well, sh are you asking me or are you asking the session of Redeemer Church? The session of Redeemer Church says, no. No, we should not. But man, I would love to. <laughs> and it's, uh, I, and, and this is what, if I can't convince the other two elders, I'm not going to be able to convince anybody. You can, it, now imagine if I if I thought no this is what we're going to do this is what I'm going to do and I don't care and, and I've actually been told by several people just do it just do it and and I and earlier I think before COVID I think I might have post COVID I would never do something like that I would never just do it I'm just going to abuse everyone I'm not going to care about the other authorities in the church I'm just going to do whatever I want that is not a person that you want in charge of the church. You don't want them in charge of Bible study. You don't even want them in charge of bringing the Bibles to the church. Next, he must not be quick-tempered. Okay, one who cannot control his own emotions cannot exercise proper judgment over church matters. And, and let me tell you how hard this is. Okay? Do, you, do you want a man who's going to fly off the handle every time he hears something he doesn't like? Right? What kind of father is that? Every time you find out one of your children disobeyed you, is it a moment for discipline? Is it a moment for discipleship? Or is it a moment for you just to absolutely lose your mind? Right? How many of us, we heard it all, how many times from our parents? How many times have I told you? They are no good. Right? Then I'm a dad and I hear this, how many, how many times have I told you this? Like, I, I, you know, and now my sons are old enough, they're like, I don't know how many times I've got to tell you not to X, Y, Z. Okay, well, first off, nice point. Very funny. Well executed. And now you lost me. <laughs> so just imagine the things that you endure. I mean, and I, right? How, how hard is it to show equanimity, right? A, a ballast that is just calm. When you find out about tragedies, when, when you, right? If you're confronting people at an abortion clinic, when you just simply get the news that somebody, that some beloved Christian died, right? I mean, this was even recently. Motion, um, like figuring out this emotion thing and how it works. A dear friend of mine lost his dog. Now, I don't like dogs. I'm sorry. I don't care about dogs. But I know what it meant for him to lose this dog. And, and, and you've got to have the emotional capacity to not let your emotions control yourself, but also be sympathetic to others. And a man who's quick-tempered is a man who's unstable. He's unstable. James chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, not in oneself nor in others. A man quick to anger with unbridled words and actions, he will abuse God's children. He will. Contentious situations, hard-heartedness, false accusations, straining sheep, a lack of resources, a lack of assistance and aid while leading an all-volunteer army requires a man who is patient and slow to anger. Uh, this has happened to me only in the last couple of years. The first time where we, this church and its session were falsely accused of something. Something we did not do. Something we did not say. And we had to defend ourselves. And, and I, there was there was a huge temptation just to start burning things to the ground. <laughs> right? I, all caps. No. <laughs> There's a way to handle these things. And, and it's, it's, it's maturing. It's maturing to have to do them. Okay, so the next one that he mentions uh, is not giving too much wine. And I think this is also, I learned that this is actually very complicated because much more, it's not very specific, right? If you said two gallons a week, 
would be more specific. Right? Two liters a week. You're like, okay, done. But he says, don't be giving too much wine. Well, compared to who? Right? I know people who only drink on Christmas, and so they think drinking wine once a week is too much. I know people who drink wine every day, right? A bottle a day, and they're like, ah, it's fine. It's not much. Right? You should see my sister. <laughs> and so this is one of those ones that requires a great deal of wisdom. Because, and, and I'll be honest, there have been plenty of times where people come and they're, they're concerned about the way alcohol is discussed in the church and the way it's consumed. And you really do have to stop and think, like, what? Is it too much? Right? Steve Brown used to tell me all the time, when anybody, some, someone accuses you of something, stop for a minute, even if it's not true, and think about if maybe it's a little true. Right? So you've got to think about this. It, it's not very clear and it requires a great deal of wisdom. What is given too much wine? What does that mean? Okay, overindulgence, especially with intoxicants, there's a great deal of harm to a man's health, his relationships, his productivity, his reputation. Um, now, you can't be a teetotaler. I think that's I think that's going too far. It's up to people's individual consciences. But I think that what I think in our circles, especially, I'm telling you, conservative people, we're like, we like cigars and scotch and wine. And I, I think we really need to stop and think about what too much means. We're, 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 we're too quick to defend it, right? People come and talk to me like, oh, here's a book called Drinking with Calvin and Luther, The History of Drinking in the Church. And I used to give this book out, and I stopped giving the book out. You know why? Because the person has a point. Right? It's a great book. <laughs> there's, you know there's a church in Germany that used to baptize in beer. And the question is, was the beer that good or was the water that bad? <laughs> okay, and the fact that I make that joke probably makes some people uncomfortable. And, and this is what we actually... We, we can't just laugh at the weaker brother and dismiss them. We have to actually think about these things. And I think this is one area the whole group of us need to think more about. Starting at the top. Moving on. Don't be violent. Now, a good translation of this word is pugnacious, which is a word I just love, which means an ill-tempered and irritable man. The Greek word is derived from the verb to strike and suggests a violent person who is prone to sudden and forceful outbursts. This is an obvious qualification given the interpersonal conflicts, doctrinal disagreements, personal provocations. Right, as I said before, people can make this, right, people can make the Christian walk with you, right? You can have some extremely personal things go on, especially if your relationship goes south, all the things that they know about you can suddenly come back, right? You've got to not be a pugnacious person. Um, we all know in marriage, right, if you want to push your spouse's buttons, the longer you're married, the quicker it is, right? And I can push my wife's buttons faster than I get the TV on sometimes. It's like, just, just pick up the remote. Okay? And, and so you cannot be this person who, who just is constantly punchy, punchy, punchy. It's, it just doesn't work. It's not Christ-like at all. Knowing when a bruised reed needs to be cared for and knowing when a stiff-necked person needs to be broken requires a great deal of wisdom, right? And, and this is, I think, uh, Spurgeon talked about, are you building a scaffolding up to heaven, or are you given two by fours with which to be? Because uh, even in our interpretive, like in a pastoral position, are these, are you giving lumber to beat people, right? The meetings will commence until uh, morale goes up kind of thing, or, or are what you're doing is you're building a scaffolding so that people can reach heaven. These are two very different projects. Now, the final negative trait is that elder must not pursue dishonest gain. This seems obvious. He must be repeatedly employed, honest in financial concerns within the church of money. He doesn't use service as a means for cash. I remember when I was working at the courthouse, I was a backup to the judges when judges weren't able to perform a wedding. I would perform weddings in the courthouse as a civil, civil wedding. Uh, and I never, I, I never charged for that. Right? Even now, even to this day, when people ask me how much do you charge for a wedding, whatever, whatever gift you want to give. Right? If you want to give a gift or not give a gift, no, there's no charge. And I think that this is this is very important to understand. If, if somebody isn't going to be trustworthy with a company car, don't give them a car. They're not going to be trustworthy with a company credit card, don't give them a company credit card. And so how you manage your own financial situation at home, right? Are you greedy for dishonest gain? Filthy lucre is what they call it in the New Testament. Money ceases to become money and now becomes filthy lucre. Right? And even you're like used to scrubs sleeping on the little pile in the army. Right? There's a lot. Dragon Sick Jared, who's a jeweler, can tell you all about this. It really exists. 
<laughs> people just like material goods. So Paul lists these vices, and then he moves on to the virtues, okay? He says, okay, don't do all of these things, and now real quick here, here's a bunch of stuff I do want you to do. Because if you're gonna do these things, it's going to train you in how to put to death those things. Because say if you're not hospitable and you never have anybody in your home, you're not going to have some of those friction moments where, where you have to demonstrate some equanimity, demonstrate some broad-mindedness, demonstrate some sympathy with other people. Because sometimes, right, imagine you're at our hospital. And you're like, yes, I did it. I brought people over to my house. And then you're sitting there in your judgy chair, judging everything you say. Well, it sounds like your boss is right you are in here. Right? Imagine, right? Imagine you, you, once you actually get in into personal relationship and you're around people, you hear all kinds of things. You gotta be able to process that stuff. Right? What, what happens if there's a, a young couple who comes over your house and while they're there, the wife is using foul language? How do you handle that? So what people do a lot of times is avoid all that. We always talk how we want to have a lot of it. Like, let's do life. Let's, let's do it, let's do it. And then you actually find out people are sinners. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, what did we do? <laughs> So when you're hospitable, what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to some of these vices. It's a biblical command to be hospitable. Authentic Christian community, agape love, and elders' most crucial work happens around the dinner table and in living rooms. I can tell you that. There, there's far more of being an elder has to do with in those situations than it does even with the one I'm presently in. Loving, sacrificial care of others is required from God's house stewards. Generosity, general interest in others. An elder must have open doors. He must welcome people into his home to refresh them and bless them. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving and sacrificial serving spirit. A lack of hospitality, hospitality is caused by what? Why don't people have others open? If you're afraid of them, what they're going to think of you, right? Or you're a bad house steward and you can't get can't get your act together, right? Because having people over means you need to have the house clean to a certain extent, and you got to have something to feed them. And if you can't do either of those things, it means you can't manage your household well. And I think a lack of household management has a lot to do with the lack of hospitality. There I right? it's, it, it's We're either fearing man, or we can't get our act together. Okay? But what we must do is rise above this this selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity and open our doors because what we're doing is opening our hearts. It's symbolic. Symbolic. People with closed doors, I often find, have very closed hearts towards other Christians. They don't share prayer back and forth. They don't share interests. They don't know about the other people's needs. They don't express their own. And having people in your homes, it is a way to solve a lot of those problems. So he also must be one who loves what is good. Now, what is that? It means the unwearying activity of love. He loves what is good. It, it's a very strange phrase. It's kind of hard to explain from the Greek, but I'm going to try. Because what it is, it, it, you're a lover of good things. Now, Job was described this way. Job 4, 3 through 4. Behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. You have made him uh, made firm the feeble knees. Well, let me go back. This is what it means to be a lover of good. You've instructed many, you have strengthened the weak hands, your words have upheld him who is stubborn. You have made him firm, you have made firm the people. That's what a lover of good is. An elder who loves goodness seeks to be helpful, he seems to be kind, loving, and generous. Jesus in Acts 10:38, it says of him, he went around doing good. He was a lover of good. He was a lover of people. He was a lover of virtue, a lover of righteousness. He thought more of others than he thought of himself. And this is what it means to be a lover of good. Right? What, what is good versus what is complicated? What is, what is good, right? What, is, what, what can you do by faith, love, and charity that you can't do if you're just thinking of yourself? Self-control includes mastery of mind, emotions, words, and deeds. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. There's no defense. Any temptation comes, there's no way to keep it out. Any um, The winds of doctrine blow about you. You, you, you. you fall for anything. You're constantly taken in. You, you have no control, no impulse control. You'll say anything. You'll do anything. You'll drink anything. You'll eat anything. And, and you might be a person, right? And there's lots of people who can demonstrate a lot of self-control when it comes to physical fitness. I'm clearly not one of them, right? And then they, that's right when they leave the gym, self-control dies. 
There are people who can go into the study and they can demonstrate a great deal of self-control. Get that PhD, baby, at the highest level of educational success, and they have no self-control, right? It comes to other areas of their life. Just because you're self-controlled in one thing doesn't mean you're self-controlled in all things. And I think the more you pursued self-control in every area of your life, the more you would see the joy and prosperity of the Lord come upon you. Right? Some, some guys, all they care about is church control. Colossians 3.14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Job, again, Job 29, 14-17, he, he says to himself, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. A man who's self-controlled is, is not somebody with, who has no walls, right? A man with self-control has walls to defend himself. And from that stable position is able to do a great deal of good for others. Right? A city that has strong walls can come to the aid of other cities. A city that doesn't have the strong walls has to keep all of its troops close, right? All of its concerns close because it has nothing to spare for anybody else because he's constantly trying to defend himself. And the wall of self-control is something that every one of us needs more of. Now the last one, discipline, just means temper. And I've, I've used the word several times, acronym. Okay? And you don't get you don't freak out too much in either direction. You, your ship has ballast because your ballast is Jesus Christ. Right? And this isn't great. The wickedness that I hear of stirs my heart, but I, I used to kind of freak out about it, right? Now I've heard everything. And so in this world, you hear great things, you hear terrible things, and what you need to be able to do is process it without having high, the high highs and the low lows. Right? Because people ask, this, amongst ministers, amongst elders, amongst officers and churches, there is something called the black dog. Spurgeon talked about it all the time. He's always walking the black dog. Because on Mondays, after the service like this, he would be so depressed that even the cigars could not get him back. He, he would just be utterly depressed. And there are many ministers I know, they call it the, right, you're up here and it's a high, and then you drop into a valley, and it is very, very difficult to control. Very, you have to really think about it and pray about it. It's a burden for a lot of men in positions in the church authority, because so much is riding on you. And what I find is in a church like ours, where the burden is so well distributed, I, people ask me about, well, how's your down on Monday? And they're like, down on Monday? Monday's my day off. You're joking? I play organs with my kids, I play video games, I read books. I sleep in till 10. It's, I love my kids. And, and, and what I joke about is that on a Sunday, I, I, get, I get tired, and in my mind, I get dumber as the day goes on. People ask me theological questions. On Sunday, it's most like when I'm about to say something from that. <laughs> I don't even know! Let's have more wine. Right? Sundays, it's like party time. But so it, it's really funny. I do not get sad. And, and I know that it, it's very serious. There are men who struggle with it. And maybe this is true for you. Maybe you go to church and it is a glorious thing. Because people are people. It's fantastic. Right? All the songs, all the words, all the prayer, all this fellowship. And then is it, are you ever sad? Right? There's a, the highs are high and the, and, and the lows are low. And what, what we all need to be is right there in the middle. Okay? Not stoics. Equanimity. Jesus is in the hold of the ship, and so the ship doesn't move too hard. It's not pushed over easily by wind. It just sails straight. It's waiting. Now, here's the conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. All of this is summarized by Paul. He says it twice. As people who are above reproach. Above reproach. Okay, and that's what all of these characteristics. If you want to be a one-woman man, if you want to be a one-man woman, if you want to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, if you want to be the kind of person who ought to be imitated, you have to do all of these things. And the best way to summarize it is to be a person who's above reproach. And what that means is unaccused. Whoever holds a position of Christian leadership must be above reproach to serve as a true example. It means that you are free from any offensive or disgraceful blight of character or conduct. And we know that this is true. If somebody comes to me, right, I'm going to use Joel as an example right here in the front row. Somebody's like, oh my gosh, I was watching the Mariners game and I saw Joe or Joel in the 30th row with three chicks. I'd be like, nah, it wasn't Joel. I just write on the page that that's stupid that you even said that. Right? I mean, it's stupid. Now, 
Why? Why would I say that? Why would I just automatically, and the burden of proof is on you, dude. Now, especially now that he's got the beard, he looks like a lot more guys than he would have before. Right? When an accusation is made, there's a lot of accusations you just hear and you're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. This, this is what I was talking about recently, last two years. Somebody said something. Somebody described a meeting the elders apparently had in some And no meeting ever existed. No such meeting ever happened. And, and on the surface of it, the people who heard it were like, oh, that's stupid. Nobody, they would never do that. They would never say that. I was asked by Presbytery to investigate that guy in Alaska, and what I found is that the, the accusations made against him were stupid. They were just false. It's like you, you meet this guy, you find out about the situation, and this is just absurd. And this is the kind of people we ought to be. <laughs> right? If there's an accusation made about me and everybody's like, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> right? And, and if, now, hold on. Uh, there are some that people would be like, well, maybe. Right? Because we're not perfect people. But what we have to attain to is that our character is so well known, our reputations are so good, our, our joy in the Lord is so strong, our reliance upon him is so strong, when people say things, anyone who knows us would be like, oh no, that's not true, or yeah, that might be it. We need to attain to the point where everybody would just be like, oh, that's silly. That's a silly thing to say about Or her. That's what all of these things do, and we're not there yet. Right? Are you, do you live above reproach? I'm saying it about myself. There are accusations people can make about you, and some people who know you will be like, probably didn't happen. And, and so what does that mean? Does that mean we go home and despair? No, what is this all about? It's all about growing our faith, growing our knowledge, growing our reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's something that might stick, then there you go. There's your prayer request. There's the thing that you're going to go home and work on with your family, that you're going to pray about, you're going to read about, you're going to think about. And if you don't know, <laughs> phone a friend. Okay, Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. If you have a kid over the age of 13 and you ask them these kinds of questions, they will be able to answer them. And the fact that more people don't avail themselves of the children that they're raising in the fear and admonition of the Lord in this way is a problem. Now, verse 9 says this. This kind of person will be able to do what? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And this is my point. He doesn't become that. That's how he's become the man that he is. I find what Paul is doing here is rhetorically very effective. Well, if you find a guy who has all these characteristics and he puts to death all these vices and he's got one woman that he adores and he's raising his children to fear and admonition of the Lord, he will be able to do this because that's how he became that guy. You, you don't go out on your own and become this guy and become a guy who discerns the word. You, you start out becoming a person discerning the word, and as you're discerning the word and applying it to your life and repenting what you must and putting to life what you should, putting off and putting on the way you should, fearing the Lord the way you should, right? When you get to your situations in your marriage, you're like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go to the word of God. I'm going to get advice. I'm going to be instructed by the God's word. What happens to you is you become a person above reproach. It doesn't happen all by itself. It's a little trick that Paul is doing here. Right? You're not a master of the word. You're a man who's been mastered by the word. And this is the difference. I can tell you right now, you can come to me with 50 questions. And I have no idea the answer to that question. But I'm sure that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his word, this is sufficient for us to find out the answer. The zeal for it is what makes a person like this. Not that they are ma they've mastered it, but they have been mastered by it. Now, do you want to be a person about reproach? Do you want to be a person putting to death these vices and enlightening these virtues, uh, who's devoted in your marriage, raising children this way, someone to be an example? It's the word of God. Because you'll go there and you'll see, I am not this person. I am not Jesus Christ. In this situation, I lied. In this situation, I fudged the truth. In this situation, I stole. In this situation, I was not above reproach. And so you confess it. You repent of it. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly, you are the one. Everybody else is like, be like that person. It, there's no trick to this. There is no secret sauce. It, it's not a mystery. Right? The more you are devoted to the Word of God, the more you will become like the one it's about. And therefore, you will become like the person he's describing. And he wouldn't tell him to look for these people unless he can actually find them. Because I think sometimes our standards are way too high. And other times our standards are way too low. 
This is a high standard. I will not back away from that. But if he tells him to find people like this, it means he can. And you're not going to become this kind of person all by yourself. It's by the word of God. That's how you're going to become that person. This is the household standard for Redeemer Church. This is the household standard for Christ's Covenant Church of North. This is the, the standard of the CRC, our denomination. This is what our households ought to be about. And, and collectively in this culture, if you want to want to fix what ails all these homes, be this kind of person. And there's only one way. And it's provided for you right here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Paul, Titus, and Crete. I pray, God, that as we consider these things, that we would not be navel-gazers or who are overly harsh with ourselves, but that we would see, Lord, what we are not and what the Lord Jesus Christ is, that we would avail ourselves of him, that we would seek him by your spirit, Lord, that we would be zealous for your word, that we would be mastered by it, that we would be the kind of people who are not only building strong homes internally, but are the kind of people lending aid to all of those that are suffering and sick outside of the kingdom. We thank you for this. We pray, Lord, that we would go from here and not uh, be depressed by the things that we learned, but that we would be uplifted and that we would, uh, that Christ would be the ballast of our ships, and that we would sail straight, Lord, true and joyous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.